Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go back with me to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew 6. While you're turning, got a question for you. When was the last time you went to the doctor? Just thought I'd make friends with you right off the bat. Maybe we could even be more specific. In the last 12 months, did you go for your physical? Did you get your checkup? Some in the room are like, yep, I got it done. And others are already starting to make excuses. They're starting to go, nobody needs to do that. They want to see you all the time. The whole system is broken. And da, da, da. Calm down. It's okay. You know, it's an interesting experience when you go to the doctor. They do all these things. They're trying to evaluate you. They're testing you. They're doing these diagnostics to give you information that's really important. I mean, you walk in and they're like, step on that scale. Like, is that optional? Right? Um, and as you're stepping on the scale, they're bringing this thing out over your head. And I'm not yet at the stage where it's going down. It's like it hasn't changed in 10 years. Like, you can go ahead and do that. Um, it's going to give you the same number. The one down there might not. <laughs> okay? But, you know, they're taking your height. They're taking your weight. They're using that to tell you, here's your BMI. Like, Ooh, I don't like that number. Who made those ranges? Right? And then on top of that, they're starting to say, now let's take your pulse. And let's put that thing around your arm that squeezes really, really hard and tells you, here's your blood pressure. Right? And they're going to take your temperature. Sometimes they even want you to stick your tongue out. Okay? Um, but the one that gets me is when they stick something in your arm and all of a sudden this red liquid starts to come out. Like, let's just, do you have time? Can we do this little blood test thing? And I'm really glad that the doctor I go to now just does that on the spot instead of scheduling another appointment. Because if I had to schedule another appointment, it probably isn't happening. But he takes the blood and, you know, they, they do this test. And, like, I'm amazed at all the data they draw out of that. And, Again, I'm no doctor, no scientist, so those of you that are can correct me later. Um, but they start to tell you, you know, that number right there, that's not good. Like, well, here's your blood sugars, or here's markers that may be for cancer or not, or here's things we look for for disease, uh, or one that's becoming more common uh, when I go to the doctor is that whole cholesterol thing. And they start to look at those numbers, and they, they make all kinds of wonderful suggestions, don't they? Um, this one over here. You can change that with your diet. And I listen very carefully, right? I'm waiting, like, drink more coffee, eat more chocolate. That never comes, right? It's like uh, more vegetables, and it's not just diet. And they're going, and this one over here, this one's not diet. This one you can actually help if you exercise more. Oh, man. You know, you go, and they start to tell you things that wouldn't be readily apparent, and some of us just say, I'd rather not know. I'm not going to go. It's all good. I'll just trust the Lord. But that diagnostic information can be helpful for us to know. Here's where change is needed. If you ignore this, like that cholesterol number, you know what that means down the road? It's not good. Pay attention. Make some changes. And that came to mind as I was studying Matthew chapter 6 this week. 
Because in the section we look at today and the sections we look at ahead, Jesus gives three diagnostic tests, if you will. He gives three areas and says, pay attention to these. You might be inclined to overlook them. And in fact, people might not even know if you're ignoring them. But these are three areas that demand your attention. And he begins to talk first about giving, and then about praying, and finally about fasting. And says, here are three areas that for some people, they're very public about them. They want everybody to know. Did you see what I gave? Did you see how I prayed? Did you listen? Oh man, it's been really hard. I am so hungry. I haven't eaten. It's just miserable because I'm devoted to God. Perhaps there's a propensity in our day for some to serve and want very clear public recognition to give and want uh, the popularity that could come with that. But I also think there's implicit challenge for many of us today when it comes to these three areas that Jesus addresses to realize that far too often we just overlook them altogether. And it's not so much about, hey, am I doing this hypocritically that it might be seen of men? Because Jesus says, as we saw this morning three times, they have their reward. But for some of us, we're like, yeah, I know I should. It's like that going to the doctor thing. I, I probably should. Yeah, it's a good thought. And I want us to take some time again this week in the services ahead to look at these three diagnostic areas that Jesus says pay attention to and for you to consider yourself in light of these truths. I can't evaluate them for you. For the most part, the people sitting in the chairs next to you really can't evaluate them for you. These are secret acts of worship private acts of devotion, of striving to please God. And yet, I believe because of their privacy, they're often easy for us to neglect. Or maybe on the other hand, as the text will mention, not simply to neglect, but to misuse for personal recognition. But in these three areas, they are wonderful tools to help us assess how are we doing spiritually Am I giving? Am I praying? Am I fasting in devotion to God? Where does he begin? He begins one of those areas that for many of us are like, ooh, ah, that one? It's uncomfortable. He begins to talk about giving even to people who are in need. You know, very common for us to view ourselves today as owners. Like, well, this is mine. I don't have to give that to them instead of stewards saying, here's what God has entrusted to me. Now, what does God want me to do with what he's given to me? And we would do well to listen to the teaching of Jesus. Not so much what I have to say, but what does the scripture say? And when, if what I says lines up with scripture, then we need to listen. But if it doesn't, you can chuck it. But to listen to what Jesus says. So we come to this first area of giving. Notice with me an imperative caution in verse 1. An imperative caution in verse 1. As we look at the imperative caution, you'll notice right out of the bat the command. It's at the beginning of verse 1. Take heed. These words, take heed, speak of being in a continual state of alert. Give attention to, pay attention to, devote yourself to this. Don't lose it. 
You know, it's kind of like that mindset when you hear a noise in the middle of the night and all of a sudden, like you were dead asleep, but now you're not. What was that? Where's the next noise? I'm, I'm zeroed in trying to figure out where is that coming from? What's going on? Because I have to know, take heed. But here he's not taking heed to some external threat that might have disrupted your sleep. He's saying, take heed to an internal propensity to do a good thing for the wrong reasons. Or again, by way of implicit application, we might also say to actually avoid doing a good thing altogether. This command, this imperative is in the present tense. It speaks of do this in an ongoing way. Not just like, hey, we're here gathering on Sunday morning, Uh, I should be taking heed, but as I go through life Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day, I need to be in this continual state of alert. Can I ask you to consider for just a moment, what do you give attention to? What do you take heed to? The score? Your team's record? Your appearance? Today, the world offers you all kinds of worries to take heed to. Like, he's going to address that at the end of Matthew 6. We'll get there. Might be a while, but we'll get there. Like, those worries are right there. Maybe it's your retirement account. Um, That one came to mind because I was working on my message on one of my flights uh, this past week. Um, And we're going from Philadelphia to Charlotte to Charlotte to Des Moines. I'm on that first flight. And there's a man sitting next to me. He's got his tablet out. And I'm not, like, I'm trying not to pay attention to what he's doing, but I'm getting, like, these noises and this dramatic motion. And he's pulling down, oh, and he's pulling down, and, oh. and every once in a while I was a little more positive, and so I did look. Um, sorry, now I'm telling all of you. Uh, that was nosy. Uh, and he's watching this particular stock, and it's $69.31, and it's $69.53, and it's $69.27. I should have counted, okay, but it probably would have been in the hundreds how many of the times on this hour and a half flight he is pulling down, refreshing his browser, checking where's this stock at. And at the bottom, there's this little red button that says sell. I don't know what he's waiting for, but I'm like, I can help you with this. I'm very tempted to reach over and be like, boop, done. You can relax, go to sleep, it's fine. He was paying attention very keenly for 90 minutes as to that particular stock. Very important. I wonder if there are areas in our spiritual life where we're willing to go, I have to pay attention to this. You know, it's really easy for us to pay attention to our devices. They ding, they beep, they buzz, they remind, they disrupt, they notify, they tell you so-and-so has liked this, you need to do this, you got a message, you need to respond, and they're constantly calling for your attention. That in today's world, it's very easy for us to not take heed to what God has told us to pay attention to. So I think for me, and for you, it's important that when Jesus says, here's a command, take heed, pay attention, that we listen and obey. What we give our attention to is a choice. Like right now, some of you are choosing to give attention to what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 6. Some of you are miles away. Sometimes your face tells it. Sometimes it doesn't. But what do we pay attention to? 
Beyond the command, look at the concern in the middle of the verse. It's part of the imperative caution we're given this concern. That ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Alms speaks of a particular kind of charitable giving to meet the needs of others. You know what? There's this need that has arisen, and because of what God has entrusted to me, because of what God has done for me, I want to give to help to meet that need. Often in this culture, that occurred as they worshipped. In fact, you'll get a sense of that in just a moment when he talks about the hypocrites, and it's like, they come to the synagogue, and they want everybody to recognize that as they've come to worship, they're giving. Did you notice? So they seek to gain some kind of points or popularity by this spiritual action. We might think today, tonight, we take the Lord's table and afterwards we give a benevolence offering. We go, you know, there are needs that arise in our midst. And as a church family, we want to seek to look like the early church, Acts 3, Acts 4, and give to meet the needs of others. So tonight as I give, hey, just, just watch, pay attention Jesus says they're missing the point. I would say by application for us that I think it's worthwhile to consider uh, when we give for recognition, but really in any spiritual activity that we do. We're going to talk about praying next week. We're going to talk about fasting in the weeks ahead as well. Um, But really in any area where we serve or where we worship, do we seek to gain recognition for ourselves instead of simply saying, this is about God, this is about others, This is not about me at all. I'd rather nobody know at all. But I simply want to give glory to God and be a blessing to others. I'm not looking to score reputation points by good, righteous deeds. Jesus here is saying, when it comes to this kind of giving, be on guard against such behavior. And the very fact that Jesus says it tells us That the threat is real in your flesh and in mine. There is a very real propensity to do good things for the wrong reasons. Don't miss that. Take heed. Be on guard. That we don't seek to meet the needs of others in a way that actually seeks to meet a selfish desire within ourselves. So that if it does go off track, it's like, it's okay, because it wasn't about me in the first place. If it is inconvenient and really messes up life and schedule and costs more than you wanted to go, you know what, it's okay, it wasn't about me in the first place anyway. It is simply about worshiping God and serving others. When, When we have that disposition, it really helps us because there's no room to get bothered if no one notices or acknowledges Great. I mean, in light of the instruction at the end of the text, it's like, we succeeded, nobody knew. Okay? So we continue to look at the text here. Jesus is telling us not to give for such self-centered reasons. In addition to the command that he's given this concern, he then gives a consequence. A consequence that would cause us to avoid such actions. So when looking at Jesus' imperative caution, we said, here's the command, here's the concern. Now at the end of verse 1, here's the consequence. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father in heaven. When we look at the consequence, we could first consider the substance. We might look at the substance as lost opportunity. Lost opportunity. 
He says, if you've done this and you sought to be a blessing and meet the needs of someone else and, and you gave, but you did it for what you would get in return, he's like, here's what you've gotten. Nothing. No reward. Not wood, hay, stubble. Nothing. That's your reward as a result. It should give us great caution as we seek to give Or again, I even believe by implicit application, even how we serve. I don't want any of this to be about what I get in return, but simply what I can do for God and to be a blessing to someone else. I believe our understanding of the consequences heightened as we continue looking at the following words. Beyond the substance, consider secondly the source, because when we're pointed to the source of no reward, we find out that it is our loving authority The substance was lost opportunity. The source is our loving authority where our Father, our Heavenly Father, says, I have nothing for you. There's no reward. The one that loves you, the one that loves me, the one that we should want to please, the one who gives us every good and perfect gift, James chapter 1 says, the one with whom we share a unique special relationship to go, he is my heavenly father. He says there's no reward. Practice rightly, a father should be able to enjoy looking at a, a child, a son, a daughter, and go, you've done an excellent job. Thank you. Congratulations. Let me encourage that behavior. Let me give you a gift. That's what it should look rightly. And here we're told, because we have messed up in the motive of our giving and made it about us, our loving authority says here's nothing as a result. But yet again, I think the consequence can even be heightened further in the final phrase that we come to in verse 1. When we look at the consequence, we've talked about the substance, we've talked about the source, but then notice the setting of this consequence. It's where God lives. We could summarize the setting this way, a long eternity. He says, which is in heaven. He could have just said, you have no reward of your father or you have no reward from God. That would have been fine. But we do believe every word of scripture is inspired. Every word of God is important. And he says, of your father. And he reminds us who happens to be in heaven. I would remind you in what we've seen back in Matthew chapter 5, while also encouraging you to think ahead to what you will see in chapter 6, that the theme of heaven and the kingdom of heaven is very important in Matthew. We spent time at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. In fact, we could back up before that. Uh, If you're in Matthew chapter 4, what was Jesus and John the Baptist's message about? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's your opportunity to be in God's kingdom in heaven forever. And then you come to Matthew chapter 5, and he begins to talk about those who are blessed in the kingdom of God. And so we come to the end of some of the Beatitudes, and they say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, this is a place that is incredible. This is paradise. This is where God lives. This is perfection. This is where you want to go. He says, but if you've given in this way... When it comes to heaven, there's no reward waiting for you there. This mention of heaven should remind us that future glory awaits. 
it reminds us that there's an eternity to live for now. In other words, we might say it this way. It takes us beyond the immediate to the ultimate. But this good deed done for the wrong reasons results in no eternal reward. Nothing in heaven. Again, think about our scripture reading. If you can go back there for a moment. Later in the chapter, that end of the section in verses 19 to 21, we're told, lay up treasure in heaven. Like We can transfer money to a savings account. We can transfer money into a retirement account. We can say, that's for later. That's for later. How do you put that money in heaven? How do you put it to use now? We're stewards, not owners. How might God use you to be a help and to a blessing to someone else in the midst of their need? In fact, I found my mind going often to Jesus pointing to the widow. Because again, it's really not about how much you have or how much you don't have, but it's about your disposition and what you do with what you have. Because Jesus points to that widow and says, she's given in the midst of her lack. They gave out of their abundance. She's given all. Our motives matter. And here we're briefly reminded, just with a little phrase at the end of verse 1, that it actually matters for eternity. That how we give to meet the needs of others here has an incredible return on investment there for eternity. And I just remind us, biblically we understand that the rewards that await there are really just opportunities to worship Jesus. Right? When we go to Scripture, we realize those rewards aren't like, yep, I'm in heaven, i got a house full, it's all good. But it's that those rewards in heaven are opportunities to say, I want to recognize and praise the one who gave his life for me. That is what motivates our giving. Scripture repeats that over and over. We went to it recently, but I remind you, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, when uh, Paul is challenging the church at Corinth, saying, follow through and give in light of the needs of the church and the believers in Jerusalem. Who does he point to to motivate their giving? He points to Jesus. Though he were rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through him might be made rich. He goes on to say, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift through Jesus Christ. You see, for followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to hold the things of this earth loosely, being willing when God prompts to go, I can give to meet that need there. I don't want any recognition for it. God, I just want to use this to help someone else. Having considered the imperative caution, verse 1, we know what to be on guard for and why. But secondly, let's look at the illustrated command in verses 2 through 4. The illustrated command in verses 2 through 4. Verse 2 provides us with the illustration. And Jesus gives us within this illustration an example in order to instruct us what not to do. Okay, so he's going to say, now now if you think about this, this ought to tell you don't do these things. Notice with me the illustration begins with an assumption in verse 2. The illustration begins with an assumption. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms. Um, I think for many in the room, we might want to go, if thou givest thine alms, right? If you happen to come across an opportunity where there's someone in need. He does not say that. In fact, it's interesting grammatically, um, 
that word thou is singular. We shift in the text from plural to singular. And it's like Jesus begins to speak to everybody on an individual level. So you, not the collective you, but you as an individual, when you go to give, recognize this reality. There's no room to hide behind the collective plural here. In other words, Jesus' instruction demands personal evaluation. And again, you can look at the statistics that are out there, run to Google or wherever you see fit, and just go, what does charitable giving as a whole look like in America? And the results aren't real encouraging. And you go, ah, well, let's not just talk about America. Let's, let's go to the church. Like, what does the charitable giving look like in the church? And the results don't look much better there either. Like, we don't have information that tells us how many people in the church charitably give to individual needs, but we do know charitable giving to the church, when it comes to tithe, is like 5 to 20% of Christians, depending on which survey you want to look, like, look at. To go, not a lot of people give. In fact, the average in American Christians is that the average American believer gives 2.5% of their income. God's blessed us richly, not just materially, but far more importantly, God has blessed us richly through Jesus Christ. That when we see someone who has a need, it's an opportunity for us to go, God, how would you use me? God, you have so blessed me. Let me be a blessing to someone else. Again, there are people that get this. Because when you go to that 5 to 20% that give a tithe to the church, the majority of those who tithe actually give way over and above a tithe, according to the studies that are out there. So that 2.5% is pulled and skewed by a lot. Now again, I don't know what that looks like here. I'm kind of glad that I don't know what that looks like here. Okay, But I know that if we're like most people, we're way too stingy with what we see as our money. Instead of saying, God, how would you use me to be a blessing to someone else? God, how would you use me to encourage and help someone else? Again, by way of application, can I just challenge us to think not just in light of our money, although that is the focus of the text here. What about our time? That one challenges me because it's very easy for me to be like, I got this to do, and I got this to do, and I got this to do, and I got this to do. Okay? And say, you know what? Sometimes people need our time. In fact, I was with a friend who's a missionary this week, and he's like, I don't need money. I need help. I need help. Like, I get it. I understand where you're coming from. And for us to go, you know what, God, how would you help me give out of the time, the talents, or the financial resources you've given? We have an incredibly giving God. And so our giving isn't done out of duty, but out of recognition of what he's given for us. So we look at the illustration, we first encountered this assumption, but secondly, notice he provides a stipulation. We're going to get to the illustration here, at least start into it. The stipulation is kind of this prohibition, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. If we summarize it by application, the stipulation is this, don't draw attention to your gift. You don't need acknowledgement, you don't need praise. You don't need a memorial plaque in days gone by. It's kind of fallen by the wayside. You just don't need recognition at all. You don't need anyone to know. In fact, the illustration again starts to come in view because he says, don't be like the hypocrites are. 
They take what should be viewed as a selfless act of worship and generosity and turn it into self-advancement and self-promotion. The word hypocrite just reminds us they're pretenders. They're actors. They're putting on a play in order to be recognized, but they're insincere in doing what they do. The illustration began with an assumption. It continued with a stipulation and finally it points to a motivation. These hypocrites that he's just talked about, that they do this when they go to the synagogue, when they're on the street on the way there. It's like, well, here's their motivation. They do this that they may have the glory of men. They want the momentary fleeting recognition. What does Jesus say? Verily, truly, I say to you, they have their reward. They want glory from mere men, not God the Father in heaven. Jesus says they got it. In that moment, man, they had it. person probably isn't going to remember next week or a year from now, but they're going to have missed what lasts for eternity because what they've settled for is inferior. It is shallow. It is temporary. And we're called to live for a higher purpose, to give for a greater reason. So we continue looking at the illustrated command. We've looked first at the illustration, but secondly, let's quickly consider the imperative in verses 3 and 4, the actual command beyond the illustration. First, notice with me, the imperative is obeyed privately. He says, but when, again, not if, but when thou doest alms, when thou you give charitably to meet needs, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. Jesus is making the simple point. He wants our giving to be done privately or secretly, as the end of, or the beginning of verse 4 makes very clear. But in doing so, Jesus uses a really unique word picture, like one that we're like saying, so do this in a way where your right hand does the action and your left hand didn't even know what occurred. Well, one, our, our hands don't think, but you get the point. He's saying, do this as discreetly as possible so that nobody knows. Again, I wonder if we are good with no one knowing when we've served, when we've given, when we've helped. This is just the first action. Jesus is going to go to talk about praying in just a moment, and then he's going to go on to talk about fasting. But when he comes to generosity here, he says, don't let anybody know. And again, we've seen it time and time again here with needs that arise in our church family, with missions things. We have an incredible generosity present here. But Jesus isn't saying, let's hide behind collective generosity. So I don't know who needs to hear that and who doesn't. But God wants us on an individual level to be committed to him, willing to give in a secret way. So we look at the idea that this imperative is first obeyed privately. Secondly, it is rewarded certainly. It is rewarded certainly. Thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. I think as we read that phrase, he's saying God will make his reward clear. Not like, well, you know, if he did it for the right reasons up front, then somewhere around the back end, God's going to say, did you see what they did? That's not the idea. It isn't like, well, if you held out long enough, then eventually you'll get the recognition that you were fighting wanting in the first place. It's just saying God will make it plain to you. I would also note for us that the Father's reward here is we're not told the timing. We're not told the nature of the reward. Right? He doesn't say next week, 
Like, you know there are the evangelists on TV. Like, put the seed in the envelope and send it in. Okay? God will bless you. We're not told when the Father blesses. It could be an eternity. To go, you know what? The timing, the nature of the reward is not told. But know this. Your Father knows what no one else knows. Your Father knows. He sees in secret. And he'll reward you. It's guaranteed. The idea of Hebrews 11.6 comes to mind. Like, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And what? That God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Do you believe that God will reward you one day? Even nobody else ever recognizes, nobody else ever understands You've just sought to live faithfully and privately before God. He rewards. You have a good, knowledgeable, generous, rewarding God. So my question for you as we conclude is simple. Do you know the joy of giving privately? Do you know the joy of God using you to meet the needs of someone else? No one else knows, but that's okay. Because God worked in your heart that you generously, sacrificially, secretly tried to be a blessing and help because of what God has done for you. Let's pray. Fathers, we've considered the words of Jesus this morning. We are thankful for their challenge to help us evaluate where we're at, areas that no one else may know about, no one else really needs to know about. But Lord, for our own spiritual well-being, you know and you reward. Lord, I thank you for the challenge in my heart and life through these verses. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would help each Christian here to know where they need to grow or they need to work in relationship to this truth as well. Lord, we again are humbled that you have loved us through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.